So, <clears throat> we are in 2 John. And I thought that we'd do 2 John today and 3 John next Sunday. But there's a lot more in 2 John that, uh, than you might at first think. It's a short book, <clears throat> but there's a lot packed into it. Let's go ahead and read 2 John, and we'll just read the first six verses together. The elder to the chosen lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, for the sake of the truth which abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. I was very glad to find of your children walking in truth, just as we have received commandment from the Father. Now I ask you, lady, not as though writing to you a new commandment, but the one which we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, that you should walk in it. Again, at first glance, you might think it's kind of repetitive, okay, truth, love, we're seeing these themes. But as I continued to read, again, my intention was to go through all of it. And I couldn't get past the first six verses. So let me share with you some of the things that stood out to me as we go through 2 John. But we're gonna look at the truth about love. And as we're gonna see, love without truth isn't really love. John here is known as the disciple whom Jesus loved. We see him referred to that in John 19, 26, 20 verse two, 21 verse seven, 21 verse 20. And so it's not surprising to read that the theme of John's three letters is love. However, unlike more and more that we hear today in our pop culture who claim love is love, love is just love, to which I've always thought when I started to see that, I go, what does that mean? Love is love. John knows better. Love is not just love. There's context. There's substance to the love of God. Love isn't a subjective feeling. Love is not just an idea. Love is far more than just a philosophy. Love is a person. 1 John 4, 8. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. And to that, some might say, I do love, and so therefore I know God. Hang on a second. Let me remind us that love is not God. God is is love. Some of us, many of us have heard this before, and I'm not trying to play semantics, but there's a reason God put it in the order he did. He knew ahead of time, 2,000 years ago, that we would be dealing with the issues that we face in our world, our culture today. Love does not define God. Converse, God defines love. The apostle John was blessed to live with and to learn from Love personified in the flesh, Jesus the Christ. John 1, 14, the word of God became flesh and dwelt among us and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Truth is so preeminent, it's so vital, it's crucial. Without truth, all of this falls apart. And as we'll see in John's second letter, Truth is primary and paramount to understanding and actually experiencing the love of God. Because again, love without truth is empty. It's crucial we understand and it's vital we know the truth. Because as we're gonna see, John will warn against deceptive heresies that were creeping in among the church. Back then, as I see personally, I'm sure many of you are seeing and hearing more and more. Heresies creeping into the church. There are whole creeds that are recited now in some liturgical churches that have completely distorted God's nature and the word of God written and who his spirit is. John warns of this in the second letter and it's so important for us today 
to understand this personally, walk this out. We see this happening today with people claiming the name of Jesus, but preaching a love that's shallow, it's cheap, and increasingly more distorted than ever. Again, love is love. That's like circular logic. That doesn't help me understand love any better. But it does leave it up to subjectivity. Well, this is how I feel. This is what they say. This is how I think. Now that truth has been sufficiently, well, let me back up here. This stood out to me actually on Friday as I was going through this. I know that there's still a battle for truth and there will always be a battle for truth so long as sin remains. But it seems like we've turned a corner at least in America and I would argue in the West and quite possibly in the world as a whole. Growing up, born in the 80s, but a lot of my growing up was through the 90s, I remember increasingly debates about truth. For example, what is the truth of what marriage is? And we've decided to redefine that, the truth, the reality of what marriage is. Now, two guys can have a ceremony and join themselves together. They can do that, but that is not marriage, no matter how much we tell ourselves or tell others that that is. That's not marriage. By definition, which again, God ordained marriage. He instituted this. Marriage is defined by one man, one woman together. The two become one. Two men cannot become one. Two women cannot become one. It is literally impossible. But that's not the subject for today's teaching. My point is, I've seen, just in my short lifespan, truth get degraded, undermined, distorted, twisted. And so, now that truth in many ways has been sufficiently undermined in our culture, efforts have now been turned against love. As we're gonna see, truth and love are inextricably bound. You mess with one, you mess with the other. And that's what we see happening. This is the progression of things. As truth goes, so goes love. Truth is what frames love. Truth is what gives function to love. Without truth, there's no love. Unlike 1 John, which was written to the church at large, and as I realized studying towards the end of this week, 1 John, if I'm not mistaken, and I could be, but this is less important, but 1 John, I believe, actually in the history of things, came after 2 and 3 John, which is kind of ironic. But that's because 1 John reads more like a dissertation on doctrine. And there's a reason, because as we go through 2 John, and at this point, my plan is to do 3 John in October, um, he's writing to the church, and there are these issues that he's addressing that are coming up, and he he addresses them succinctly and, and quickly here. And it becomes apparent, boy, John's got a lot that he needs to address to the church as a whole, as he encounters local church fellowships, as he encounters brothers and sisters on an individual basis. Second and third John are letters that give us intimate portraits of John's relationship and his love for the church. But with all that introduction, let's just jump in here. Let's look at verse one together. The elder to the chosen lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth. There's a lot packed in there. There's gonna be a good chunk of our time that's just spent there in verse one. But let's first ask the question. It's, it's called the second letter of John, but if you actually, see, second letter of John is not what was actually in the scroll or the letter. It just, it was addressed the elder to the chosen lady. So why do we call it John's second letter or second John rather? How do we know this is even from John? Although John isn't named, one thing is as we go through this, this is gonna read like John. Second John sounds a lot like first John. And third, second, and first John all sound a lot like and use the same verbiage that the gospel according to John uses. It has John written all over it without his name. However, if that's not enough, we know from ancient documents that his own apprentices, his preaching, proselytizing protégés, you'd like that one, Rick, Ignatius and Polycarp, okay, you would, you, we could call him his two disciples, although he was discipling them in Jesus, not in himself. His two trainees, 
acknowledge that he wrote this letter. And all of the early church fathers, all the ancient contemporary writings all agree this is from John, undisputably. John wrote this letter, give you some more history here, after his gospel account. And he wrote this after his revelation of Jesus, the book of Revelation. And he's somewhere in his 90s at this point when he writes this. He's an old man, which, so, which makes more sense why he would say the elder. We hear elder, we read elder, and immediately we go into you know, Christianese talk. Oh, he's an elder. He's an elder in the church. He's on the board of elders, whatever. That's, it's, it's more than that. Yes, he's spiritually an elder, but he is really an elder in every way since of the word. The man is in his 90s. I almost wrote this. I don't know, but I wouldn't be surprised if John might be the oldest Christian on the face of the earth when he writes this. He is the eldest of the elders, most likely. And the word elder referred to, well, the word elder is actually where we get the word presbyter or presbytery, the Presbyterian church, the church of elders. But theologians and scholars are not in consensus about this, who, who this chosen lady is. Who's this chosen lady? And who are her children? It, it was really fascinating. I'm reading this and I'm going, well, I think I know, but let's see what the others are saying. <clears throat> and it, it seemed, at least in the, in the sources I read, it was almost like 50-50. Some ascribe this to an unnamed woman who obviously had some charitable, noble reputation and standing in the church. And whether these children are her maybe biological children or spiritual children, right? Others, however, believe this reference is to a specific church fellowship and her congregants. Personally, after reading this, I believe the chosen lady and her children are a church fellowship. And they're speaking, it's written to the faithful saints of that local fellowship. It would be like Rick or Les, I'm gonna use Les. It'd be like Les, writing to the Bridge Fellowship. That's what it would be like. And it's interesting because 1 John chapter 2, verse 1 uses this language, children. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And everyone knows who John is writing to in this letter. By the time John wrote this, the church had already been referred to in this way. References to the church in the feminine. And it's, it's interesting to know, and I think it's really important for us to understand that so much of what we read in the New Testament, the verbiage, the terminology, the understanding behind these words has a Hebrew context. Because when you look at the way God refers to Israel, feminine, over and over. He even calls Israel a bride. You can look at the book of Hosea, for example. That's the nation of Israel represented in their relationship with God. Paul referred to the church 30 years earlier before this letter in Ephesians 5.31 as bride. And John, previously in his revelation of Jesus Christ in Revelation 19.7, called the church the bride as well. The language of verse 13 in 2 John, it reads, the children of your chosen sister greet you. To me, that already seems to indicate that this is not speaking of someone but of a group of people. It's more of a title than it is a pseudonym or anonymous name. However, for me, what ended the debate, I went ahead, I'm like, hmm, what what our brother Rick has to say on this? He's taught this before. So I went ahead and listened a little bit. It ended the debate for me. I love history, but I have a long ways to go when it comes to understanding syntax and language and grammar. Fortunately, I found out that John writes this when he says chosen lady, he writes it in the second person plural. Makes sense, right? It didn't to me, so I had to listen some more. Let me put it this way. If you've ever hung out with Jim and Brandy Hayes, you've heard this American colloquialism. They're from Texas, by the way. Some Southern folks use the expression y'all. There's your second plural pronoun, second person plural pronoun. Such a mouthful when all you have to say is y'all, or even better yet, all y'all, which is like all, y'all plus three, like it's one, you, y'all, and many. Or if you're like Joe Pesci, you'd say things like use, you guys. We're talking second person plural pronoun. I can see some of your eyes are opening up. You're like, oh. 
By the way, if you fall asleep on me, please don't feel bad. My wife reminds me. It's a blessing and a curse. Sometimes she intentionally, she's having a hard time falling asleep, and she'll ask me, Jake, would you please pray? I know what that means. I know what that means. So if you fall asleep, just know that you're in the grace of God with the word of God being taught, and I pray that it gets in either knowingly or through osmosis. But maybe you're awake now as I try my impressions on Joe Pesci. All this to say, unless the chosen lady has multiple personalities, I think it's safe to conclude that John is writing to a church fellowship of Jesus' disciples. That's my story and I'm sticking to it. But the next part here, he says, whom I love in truth. Whom I love in truth. I wanna pose a question to you that, a question that came to my mind as I was studying this. The Holy Spirit, I believe, was impressing on my heart as I read that. One, whom I love in truth. That's an interesting phrase, expression. What does that mean to love someone in truth? And then before I even started to look at answering that question, the Lord was saying to my heart, how do you love people, Jake? And for that matter, how do you receive love from people? I pose that question to you to chew on as we go through what it means to love in truth. What does it mean to love someone in the truth? This is why Jesus was so different from other rabbis. The other rabbis knew, knew the word. I don't have the reference here, but in the Gospels it says when Jesus taught, he taught like a man of authority. The rabbis all quoted scripture and they quoted the oral law. When Jesus spoke, it was like it was from him. <laughs> Maybe because it was. He was so different in the way he taught, the way he interacted with people. He gave personal attention and he imparted meaningful value to those he interacted with. Not just the people that loved him, even his most vehement enemies, he would spend time and give the time of day to interact with them. My, my attitude or my understanding of the dialogue we read between Jesus, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the ruling elites, my understanding of their relationship has changed. Because as I've gotten older, the love of God has changed my perspective. And instead of Jesus, you know, just dropping mics left and right on them, like, oh yeah, how about this one? And then just shuts them up. He doesn't go at it to try and shut them up. He, he, if you read carefully, when he has dialogue with his enemies, he asks them questions with an intention to get their eyes to open. He's not coming here to put them down. He's not insecure about who he is. He knows who he is. They can question him all day long. Whose authority do you teach these things? Jesus knows, and he doesn't have to answer to anyone. So why does he spend time talking with the Pharisees? Because I would submit to you he loved them as much as he loved his closest disciples. Because he made them too. Maybe that gives you another glimpse of what it means to love in truth. And not to pick on my brother, but anyone who's gotten to know Les and Donna have experienced this. They're very personal people. Even, so <clears throat> there are times where you're talking or praying with Les and Donna, and they're exhorting you, and they're encouraging you, and they're speaking things into your life, and it makes you feel good. But some of us here have had the privilege to have them admonish us. And the funny thing is, is even when you're being admonished by Les and Donna, you're, you're experiencing love, and you know it. Maybe it doesn't feel good, but at the same time, you're like, this is good. And they're saying this to me out of the goodness of their heart. They want, they're, they're wanting something for me. So when Jesus taught and when he spoke, he didn't just say good-feeling words to people that he loved. He spoke the good word, which God, Jesus qualifies to the young rich ruler. Good is God. So he spoke the holy, true, pure, unpolluted, undiluted, unadulterated word of God to everyone because the word of life, the word brings the life. All that to say, getting back to my notes here. <clears throat> John says he loves this fellowship of believers in truth. In truth. Before we explore what this means, I want us to take a step back and define what truth is. If we're gonna know what it means to love someone in the truth, we need to know what truth is. John 18, 37, there's an exchange going on between Pilate and Jesus. Pilate said to Jesus, so you're a king. Jesus answered, you say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born, and for this I've come into the world to testify 
to witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Which right there, Jesus is strongly implying, if you hear me, you hear the truth. Why? Because I'm the truth. But Pontius Pilate's famous retort, what is truth? And that has been the question of my day and age and the nation and the world I live in. What is truth? Truth is what it means to you. That's not what Jesus says. Why is there so much confusion about what love is? It's because for generations, truth has been confused. Truth has been convoluted. Truth has been contorted. John 14, 6, Jesus claims, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That's definitive. There's nothing subjective about it. And so anyone who claims faith in Jesus, oh, I believe in Jesus, yet believes truth is relative or subjective, has a contrary faith, and at best is confused about Jesus. Let me say that again. If you claim to believe in Jesus, but believe truth is relative or subjective to how you feel and what you think, then at the very best, you're very confused about what you believe. I'm confused about what I believe if that is what I'm saying. And that's the first point here. God's truth frames love. God's truth frames love. If you wanna know love, get to know God's truth. And if you don't know where to start, John 14, six is probably the best place. Jesus. He went, look no further, I am the truth. If you wanna know what true love looks like, get to know Jesus. Whether you know him personally and have received him as your Lord and Savior, or you haven't. Jesus didn't just come to those who believed in him. Even his 12 didn't fully understand and believe in him until after his resurrection. Jesus didn't come to save those who were already saved. He came to the sick and the hurting. And I think our souls, how we think and how we feel about love, has been polluted or assaulted in some way, shape, and form. If you wanna know what true love is, know Jesus, because God's truth, that is Jesus, frames love. Muhammad, Buddha, Joseph Smith, L. Ron Hubbard, and Charles Taze Russell, who's the founder of Jehovah's Witness, all have something in common. They never claimed to be the truth. Never. Only Jesus does. John loves this fellowship with a 1 Corinthians 13 kind of love. If we want to understand what true love looks like, you can turn over there now or just listen along. I'm in 1 Corinthians 13, very popular passage in the church when we talk about love. You go to a wedding, you're gonna hear people often recite this, and it's true, and I'm already sounding like it's very cliche. I think we have turned it into a cliche, but the truth of 1 Corinthians 13 love is profound. It's dynamic, and it's something I believe we're gonna spend the rest of our earthly lives understanding and learning, not just in our mind, but believing in our heart and walking out, because no one does this perfectly. Love is patient, love is kind, and is not jealous. Love does not brag, and it's not arrogant. Which right there, side note, I didn't realize this, but for years, I saw Jesus the way he spoke to the Pharisees. It sounds anathema to even say it. Without realizing, I kind of viewed Jesus as being arrogant towards the Pharisees, like, ha, I'm gonna beat you here. That is not the way Jesus talks. He wasn't braggadocious, he wasn't arrogant. Verse five, love does not act unbecomingly obnoxious, obscene. I feel like I'm getting old at a faster rate than my parents got old. And part of that is social media. And man, social media, you can tell like we're being conditioned. And really it's a, it's a two-way street. Social media is trying to keep up with humanity and humanity is being conditioned by social media because the clips, the reels, the stories, how long people's attention spans on social media keep getting shorter and shorter and shorter. And the reason I bring this up is, if you wanna get someone's attention, you gotta be obscene. You gotta be obnoxious. You gotta you know, be the, the flash in the pan. Do something radical. And so what do people do? They act more and more radical, more obscene, 
more obnoxious. Unbecomingliness is a becoming trait, apparently. But God says, that's not love. Love doesn't seek its own. Love is not provoked. Some of your Bibles might say easily provoked. That's a challenging one for me. Love does not take into account a wrong suffered. I think that's hard for a lot of us. And love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Let's break this down really quick. Love. If God's truth frames love, then the truth of God's word is explaining to us what love is. Love is patient. The word is long-suffering. It's where we get the word marathon from. And so all these celebrity weddings, unfortunately, we see and hear about. When, when someone's been married more than two years, you're like, oh, this might stick. This is where we get the word marathon from. And so it's not coincidental then that the word that follows this long-suffering love is kind. Love is kind. And I want, you, I want to point out here, love is a verb. It's a verb. It describes a love that's useful. What is kindness? I looked it up in the Greek, and it literally means useful. Love is utilitarian. It benefits. It actually does something good to the one receiving it. Kindness is evidenced in acts of generosity. So it's one thing for me to tell my wife I love her, but if I don't do things that bless her, that are generous, even out of a sacrificial spirit, my wife could start to wonder, does he love me? He says the word all the time. Sometimes he'll get me real opulent gifts, but on a day in and day out basis, I learned this about Cam, and I think this is true of most women. You know, at the end of the day, there's nothing like, especially if you've had kids or have kids, there's nothing like coming home and the dinner's done, the dishes are clean. And here's the interesting thing, when you've suffered long with someone, compassion and generosity follows. Love is patient, love is kind. Not bitterness. Bitterness and resentment, passive aggressiveness doesn't follow patience. Because if you've been patient and then you're passive aggressive, you weren't patient to begin with. Patience isn't just waiting, okay? Patience has a heart of mercy. It's, it's because of the patience of God that this world still exists today. Because he, he knows who all will believe in his name. And he's enduring the offense of humanity's sin as it grows like a cancer so that he can rescue all those he knows are going to believe in him. He endures and puts up and tolerates our sin so that he can save us at the right time. Every description here in 1 Corinthians 13 is in the verb tense. It's active. And again, I'm explaining what love is because truth frames love because love is not just a feeling. Love is a verb. If you listen to the 90s rock and rap trio DC Talk, they had a song. Love is a verb. Man, it was so hard for me. I'm writing this. I'm like, what if I started beating some of the lyrics? I'm like, no, that'll, that won't look good. But I was, I was really surprised. John Mayer, who I don't know where he stands with the Lord. I, I would hazard a guess he doesn't know Jesus. That was about him. He wrote a song called Love is a Verb. And I thought it was, I, I like the song. Because I think anyone who's lived life long enough knows love's got to be more than words. Which is another great song, right? I, what, what's the name of the band or the, the, the duet? It's called More Than Words. More than words. You know what I'm saying, right? Right. Is all you have to do to make it right. There have been songs who have, that have been written to describe love because there have been people who have gone, love is more than the way we think of it in humanity. And it, it, we've all seen this in movies. Some have said this to others and maybe you've heard this from someone else. Don't tell me you love me. Show me you love me. At the same time, hearing someone near to you say I love you is really important too because God says it to his people. So it's not either or, it's both and. My dad grew up and um, truth was paramount. Again, it was everything. And if someone wasn't being, 
if someone wasn't doing something right, man, someone else in the family was going to let them know. You know, they beat them about the head and neck with the truth. And it's, you know, I love you. What are you doing? <laughs> that doesn't feel loving, does it? I haven't gotten into this yet, but um, truth without love is cruel. And notice, nothing we read in 1 Corinthians 13 is cruel. Love is not arrogant. In other words, love is not proud. Pride. What's the world equating with love today? Pride. It's a contradiction in terms. Pride and love are opposed to each other. You cannot be proud in your love. I think that's another word that we would do well, at least in the church, to understand. What is pride? And I understand, I've said it, you know, to our kids, I'm proud of you. It's interesting that God says, this is my son, not who I'm proud of. He says, this is my son in who I'm well pleased. I'm deeply glad in. That my son fills my heart with joy. You know, the church's language should sound different than the world. And that's not condemnation. I'm, I say that to myself. Food for thought. However, <clears throat> coming up here, let's home in on verse six. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness. Let's demystify what the word righteousness means. Righteousness means holiness, truth, and purity. So when we sing of God, holy, 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 we are saying over and over, you are true, you are pure, you are unpolluted, over and over. And he is a level of holiness that nothing else is. In other words, love does not celebrate unholy things, false things, or polluted things. True love is a pure and holy love, and that love originates with Jesus. And last but not least, love rejoices in the truth. I will say it again, John 14, 6. Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So back to 2 John. If you look at verse one, if we understand that Jesus is the epitome of, of truth, I'm gonna do something. I wanna challenge you to go through it with me. We could reword this without losing its meaning. Now, I'm not gonna rewrite the scriptures, don't worry, but consider what I'm about to read. You read this along with me and you're gonna notice how I change it. The elder to the chosen lady and her children, whom I love in Jesus. And not only I, but also all who know Jesus. Which means if you know Jesus, if you love Jesus, you love what and who he loves. There's a whole lot of unlove going on in the fellowship of the body of Christ. What I mean is we can't love Jesus and at the same time disdain or distance ourselves from his church. He says, Jesus says of his church, it is his body. This is my body. So how can you, <laughs> that's like, I want to talk with Cam. Sorry, I'm using Cam all the time. How much do I owe you? Is it like, 20, it's 25 cents for every time I mention your name, right? <laughs> We're going to go with cents. But it's easy because she's my wife. That would be like, I love her. I love her face. I love her hair. But I want nothing to do with the rest of her. That makes no sense. That makes no sense. Honestly, that sounds kind of psychotic, like there's a weird fetish. <laughs> Think about it, though. Do we as Christians live or espouse a love that kind of sounds like that? Sounds a little psychotic. It's a little off. I love Jesus, but I can't stand his church. Well, the head is connected to the body. Do I need to sing that song? You know, the rib bones connected to the... We can't take part of it and not all of it. That's not how love in Jesus works. Not long ago, I reconnected with an old friend that I met in the church. These days, he doesn't gather with other believers. He says he still prays and believes in the Lord, and, and I can't doubt that. But he's so disillusioned with the church. His heart is somewhat hard. Not completely. 
And I think, actually, there's a reason. He and I hadn't seen each other for a long time. And out of the blue, he wanted to meet up with me, and it filled my heart with joy, because I love this guy. And I got to catch up with him, but he's been offended. Until recently, until recently, instead of seeking restoration, he's dislocated himself from the body. And that's, I think, that was a word that came to me I've never thought of before. I find it ironic. There are many of us in the church who are still part of the church, but we don't gather in the fellowship. And we think, I'm not part of the church. Oh, no, you are. That's like dislocating an arm. The arm is not in function with the rest of the body. It's still part of the body, though. It's not cut off. Only Jesus does grafting and ungrafting, right? We don't get to do that. That's not in our charge or our, our power. And there are a lot of us who, at some point in life, have convinced ourselves that I love Jesus, but not the church, so I'm not part of the church. No, you still are, but you're dislocated. And if you've ever had a dislocated joint, you know how painful that is. And the longer it's dislocated, the harder it is to put back in, and the easier it is to come back out. And I say that to brothers and sisters who are here. So again, I'm, I'm not pronouncing a judgment on anyone here, or even on live stream, but I'm saying we need to remember this picture. I believe this is a picture from the Lord. He uses the word body for a reason. 1 Corinthians 12, 27 makes it clear that every disciple of Jesus is an inseparable part of his body. So if you're listening to this and you're dislocated or you're trying really hard to separate yourself, please stop because you're not just hurting me and others, you're hurting yourself. And most importantly, we're hurting Jesus. Imagine the head is looking at a body part that is dislocated and it's painful. It caused pain, it causes pain and grief to Jesus. Let me point this out. Let me paint this a little more vividly. Have you ever tripped over one of your feet, right? You trip over one of your feet and you fall down, but you don't hurt your foot. You hurt some other part of your body, your wrists, your elbows. Maybe you trip and land into a wall. <laughs> Sounds funny. But <clears throat> did the hurt part of your body try and remove the foot? Have you ever tripped and fallen and gone, oh, honey, get me a knife. I'm tired of these. <laughs> no, we would never do that. Why would we do that in the church? Or what about radiating pain? This one stood out to me. This one kind of stands out to me based on my friend I was talking with. Actually, I've talked with a lot of people in the church who really could identify with this picture. Radiating pain. Have you ever stubbed a toe? And the toe hurts. Or maybe you've accidentally slammed or jammed a finger, but because of the radiating pain in your foot or hand, you've gone, oh, I'm tired of this hand. Because of the toe, your foot hurts. So do you try and cut off your foot? No. What am I trying to point out here? I've seen believers treat the church this way. Either they've been hurt personally or they truly feel the pain from someone else's hurt in the church. See, that's the other thing is when I, dis, let's say I'm an arm, when I dislocate myself from the body, I'm dislocating others too. Food for thought. So they remove themselves from fellowship and sometimes, unfortunately, even resort to gossiping about and slandering the body that they're part of. See, again, if you're a Christian, if you believe in Jesus, no matter how much you try and distance yourself, you can't. You're still part of his body. Why love Christians? Why love the church when it can be so painful? Well, for one, within the church, there's reconciliation. There's hope for restoration. Try that in the world. Some, some would say, you know what, actually, I like people in the world better than the church because at least the people of the world, you know what you're getting. Like, People of the world are just as hypocritical as people in the church because they're people. All you have to do is listen to the news. Are we really gonna put our faith in the love and the relationships of the world? At least within the body of Christ, we have a father, we have a head that guides and directs us, that can tell us, send, send signals to the nerve. The Holy Spirit can convict and go, oh, this hurts. 
And the other parts of the body, if they're acting correctly, will come alongside the hurting part and look for restoration. Galatians 6, 1 talks about that. Being gentle, carrying burdens with the other one and restoring a brother or sister in love, lest we fall to the same trap, ensnarement. Galatians 6, 1 is not up there. <laughs> All that to say, why? Why love Christians? Why love the church? If it's not for you and me, then why? For the sake of Jesus who abides in us. Look at verse two. He goes on and says, for the sake of the truth, which abides in us and will be with us forever. Jesus said in John 15, four, abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself. Unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you, unless you abide in me. I'm the vine, you're the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. Because apart from me, you can do nothing. A dislocated member of the body, can't do anything, it's without function. Now, when a fellow brother or sister in the church has offended me, or maybe they just bother me. I don't know about you, but people, sometimes some people just rub me the wrong way. And uh, it really has bothered me to know, you know, there are probably people in the church that I just bug. My personality, whatever it is, there's something about me that just rubs them the wrong way. And I gotta get over that. That's why he's fitting us together as living stones that make the temple of God, Jesus being the cornerstone. But the Holy Spirit's taught me three things in this issue of being offended and how to abide. Number one, remember that Jesus died to save that person. The eternal God gave his life to save that person. So they're worthy to him. Number two, remember that Jesus loves them. So again, if I love Jesus, I'm going to love who he loves also. And third, and this is really applicable, pray for that person. Pray for that person and not in a self-righteous way. Lord, would you open their eyes to the frivolous sin that they're in? I can only imagine Jesus listening to Jake while I passively aggressive, pray to him about someone else. Do you think he's gonna honor that? Probably not. When I say pray for that person, I mean ask him to give you his heart for them. It starts with me, not the other person. Because when we won't love for Christ's sake, we stop abiding in Christ. So how do we love someone beyond our ability or even desire to do so? Colossians 3.15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts. Thankfulness has come up twice in this passage already. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Rick taught on this not too long ago. When we say in Jesus' name, amen, we're saying in accordance with your character. His name is his character, his personality, his traits. Do all in the character, heart, personality of the Lord Jesus. Giving thanks, third time, giving thanks through him to God the Father. How, how do we love others when it's hard? Let the peace of Christ rule you. Jesus is not just Savior, he's Lord, which means master. And peace isn't just calm and quiet. Peace is restfulness. Peace is rest. Peace is the end of striving. Peace is tranquil harmony with Jesus. And to let his peace rule you, to rule, to rule me, we must surrender to him. In order to walk in this, in order to love people in the truth, we have to let his peace, as I've just expounded on, rule us by surrendering to him. And only then, when we surrender to him, can we learn from him. John eleven twenty eight. 28, come to me, 
all you who are heavy, burdened, and weary, and I will give you rest for your soul. Maybe you're worn out because of conflict between you and another brother or sister in Christ. It's time to come and surrender yourself to the throne. Come to the foot of the cross and surrender these things. Process honestly with him. Pray for him to teach you and to receive him. If we won't surrender to him, we can't receive from him. And notice this peace of Christ in Colossians 3.15 says, called us, this peace of Christ called us into one body. There it is again. We can't fully experience harmony with Christ while being separated from his body. And that's the second point. Truth inspires love. Look at verse three with me. He goes on and says, grace, mercy, peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. I'm not gonna break this whole verse down because I don't have time for it, but I would encourage you to go listen online to Rick's teaching on this because there's a lot more here than what I have time to unpack. But let's look at the grace, mercy, and peace. It's important to note the order. Grace, mercy, peace. God gave his grace. That's his favor. And he didn't just give his favor, favor to friend or family. He gave his favor to hostile sinners. Hebrews 12, three, and that's all of us here. All of us are here because of his favor towards us while we were still hostile to him. That's love, again, that's real love. Without his favor, his grace to us, we, we then cannot experience his compassion on us. The grace is what unlocks the mercy. Kenneth Wiest describes God's mercy this way, kindness and goodwill toward the miserable and afflicted, joined with a desire to relieve them. I don't know how long ago I realized this, but this is what I love about God's power. He's not just all powerful, but he actually uses his power with his intention and desire to love me. It's not just revel in my power and glory, it's now all my glory, my power, I'm going to bring to you intimately on a personal level. His mercy is like that. His mercy has a desire to relieve us, to, to anoint our wounds and our afflictions. Grace is God's powerful favor that saves us. His mercy is unfailing compassion to stoop down to our level and gently care for us and tend to our pain. How many stories do we see like that throughout the Gospels? Right, the woman with the bleed, I don't know why she keeps coming to mind. Or the woman who was caught in adultery. Never mind the man who was part of that transaction. He's not mentioned, but she's drug out to be stoned, to be condemned, humiliated, and then stoned to death. And what does Jesus do? He gives favor towards her. She didn't deserve it. She was definitely caught in sin. But then because of the grace, he then gives her mercy. And he says, I don't condemn you. He imparts value into her life. This is the mercy of God. And then the word peace here, grace, mercy, peace. The word is Irene, but it's interesting because it's used in the verb tense here, Iro, which means to bind together, bind together. God's favor towards us enables us to receive his tender care and compassion so that we can be joined to him, which then makes us whole. Peace is wholeness. Peace is not just quietness, it's wholeness. And Rick put it this way in his teaching. The way John writes it, it's not so much of a greeting. Like Paul says, you know, grace and peace be to you in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's not the way John writes it. He writes it less of a greeting and more of a promise. And I'm, I'm, I am, I'm gonna refer to Rick's teaching here. It's like a parent talking to a child that's hurt, suffering or struggling. It's gonna be okay. Grace, mercy, peace will be with you. Remember that. He is abiding in us, and one day we're going to experience the fullness of all of this. This is truth and love. Truth and love is tangible, it's experiential, and it's effectual that changes a life. That's real, true love. Look at verse four. 
I was very glad to find of your children walking in truth, just as we have received commandment from the Father. There are a few things as exciting and comforting simultaneously, like going through a strange place and meeting a fellow Christian. Have you ever experienced that? Anyone? You're in a strange place, right? Maybe you're in another country. I've experienced this in another country. I was experienced this in a country that was pretty hostile to the gospel. I come into a coffee shop and I overhear some people talking and I start to, as I'm minding my own business, I'm listening to their conversation. Be careful what you say in coffee shops. And one thing leads to another and I look over and they notice me. We don't say anything. It was like our eyes caught. It was like love at first sight. <laughs> it was a dude I found out was a brother in Christ. I come over and I start talking with him and all of a sudden, I don't know him from Adam. And now all of a sudden we have this bond and it was so sweet, especially given our context. I, again, I was overseas in a country that's pretty hostile to the gospel. And now I found another brother in Christ and it was like, it was like meeting extended family. It was almost in some way like we'd always known each other because we had this common bond, the truth of God's love in our lives and so for each other. It's as if John wrote verse four this way. I was thrilled to come across brothers and sisters from your fellowship who were faithfully following Jesus's commandment, just like he taught us. And we don't have to go to another country. We come across brothers and sisters in Oak Harbor and Anacortes, because we gotta remind ourselves, all the Christians in the area don't just come to the bridge. We got brothers and sisters in other fellowships. Thank, thank the Lord. To walk in truth is to order your life according to the truth. Look over at uh, John's third letter. should just be right there on the next page. And look at verse three. He writes, For I was very glad when brethren came and testified to your truth, how you are walking in truth. John writes, I have no greater joy than this, to hear of my children walking in truth. And that's something that is more and more significant and poignant to me as, as a parent. I don't care if my kids make an incredible living financially. I don't care if they're popular and well-received by the masses. I don't care what kind of notoriety they get in life or don't. I don't care how much people might disdain them. What I care about is do my son and daughter walk in truth? And to walk in truth literally means to order your life according to truth. And if your life is ordered to truth, guess what? You walk in love because truth and love are one and the same. Romans 12.1, Paul writes to the church in Rome, therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Interesting, he says, your body, which is your spiritual service of worship. So none of this, well, I can do what I want, but I love Jesus in my heart. If I love him in my heart, it'll be evidenced in my life. He goes on and says, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. The truth about love is, it's found in Jesus. And those who follow Jesus conform their lives to his. That's the third and last point. True love lives by truth. So in summary here, what do we got? God's truth frames love, truth inspires love, and true love lives by truth. You're like, okay, love, truth, truth, love. I want it to be ingrained into us because as much as we read it and hear it, how much of it is affecting the way we perceive our world and ourselves and most importantly, God. Look at verse five. We're gonna start going through this pretty quick. We've only got two verses left. Now I ask you, lady, not as though writing to you a new commandment, singular, but, from, but the one which we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. John underscores this commandment in verse four, again in verse five. And why is he stressing over this commandment from the beginning? It sounds really repetitive, right? Sounds really repetitive. 
But he says something interesting. It's a new commandment, but the one which we've had from the beginning is a new or old, John. <laughs> this is both the oldest and the newest commandment. It's old in that God has been teaching this for millennia. When you read the Mosaic Covenant to the people of Israel, it's all summed up in love. Jesus, when he's questioned, what's the greatest commandment? Matthew 22, 37 through 40. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Which again reminds us, I can't say I love God and not love my neighbor. But Jesus came to expound Leviticus 19.18. For one, the context here was a familial love for those in your tribe. Love your neighbor. He's speaking to Jewish people, or at that point, Israelites, Hebrew people, who were living among other Hebrew people. Love your fellow countrymen. Okay, easy, right? And for second, <clears throat> this was lost on the hearts that lived by the law and not by the Holy Spirit. They didn't understand fully what this meant, and I can't blame them. But Jesus says in John 13, 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Okay, Jesus, we got that. Even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, by this love, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. This is a supernatural love. He said this before he went to the cross. So he told them in advance and then he performed it in front of their eyes and then they realized this is what real love looks like. That's the agape love of Jesus Christ. That love you cannot find in the world. You'll find the storge love, right? The love between a parent and, and children, vice versa, familial love. You'll find the phileo love, deep bond, camaraderie among friends, like brothers, or the eros love, which is what our culture you know, fantasizes about, right? The romantic love. But the agape love, the agape love is on another level. Because while Jesus was hanging on that cross and people were vehemently slandering him to his face, he asked the Father. He was praying to the Father in their sight and in their hearing to forgive them. That's not a love of this world. And Jesus says, love each other as I've loved you. Jesus revealed the depth of this love in himself. His love extended beyond the barriers of family, and friends, and it reached right into the heart of the darkest enemies. Saul, a third of the New Testament's written by one of the greatest threats and enemies to the early church. But because the love of God covers a multitude of sins, he's no longer Saul, he's Paul. And verse six, and this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. Now it's plural. This is the commandment, singular, just as you have heard from the beginning that you should walk in it. I watched a clip, or what YouTube calls shorts, Instagram calls reels. I watched a clip of a young woman on a podcast. She was asked if she was a Christian, and immediately she went, yes. And then, yeah, some of you have seen it. And then they, were, they asked a follow-up question, do you believe in the Bible? To which she just as quickly replied, no. And the, the reel was over. It was like, because I think the, the point is, you're a Christian, but you don't believe in what should be guiding your life. How, how does this work? Again, that's an, that is a real life representation of love without truth. Then your love means nothing. It's empty. It's worthless. It has no bearing or substance. There are more and more in the church house in the church house, not the world, in the church house that believe and live this way. John 14, 21, Jesus made it really clear. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me, who keeps my commandments. And he who loves me, aka keeps my commandments, will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and will disclose myself to him. To experience and offer love, agape love, our life must be attuned to and in alignment, literally in harmony with the truth. The reason we walk in the true love of Jesus, though, isn't to prove our holiness. And I think many of us read that and already start to misunderstand what he's saying here. 
It's not to prove I'm holy. It's not to prove I'm spiritual. The reason we order our lives to Jesus' teachings is because we love him. If you love me, keep my commandments. Jesus said in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. What did he say of himself? I'm the truth. I think we're getting this. I'm, I'm beating this horse to a bloody pulp on purpose. We don't obey God's commands, those, like slaves. We don't obey his commandments like we're slaves to a tyrant where we're trying to prove our loyalty and spirituality. We have nothing to prove. The only thing we could prove is that we're miserably horribly afflicted by our sin and we need the love and forgiveness, the mercy of an all-loving God. That's the only thing we prove. When we love him by obeying his commandments, our lives are then ordered in his truth. When we align our lives with his truth, his love fills us and his love affects others in our lives. Others around us will see and taste the fruit of his spirit in our life. Love is the first fruit mentioned in the fruit of the spirit. And I would submit to you that love is the fruit of the spirit and all the others are just aspects of that fruit. Patience, goodness, kindness, faithfulness. All aspects, characteristics of the one fruit, which is love. Truth without love. And worship team, you guys can come forward and get ready. Truth without love is merciless. Love without truth has no power. Jesus' commands of truth and love isn't just for his sake. John writes, for the sake of the truth. But the beautiful thing is, when we glorify God, we benefit from his goodness. When he's blessed by our lives, we get blessed by his benevolence the benefits of his glory. Jesus commands us to walk in truth for his sake, but as we'll see next week, it's for our protection too. Because if we don't walk in the, the truth of God's love, we become subject and prey to darkness, to lies, to deception, to disease, to decay. And that's, that's why John writes this letter to the church fellowship. To love in truth, so that we can be on guard. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, you know that I have gone around and around this with my brothers and sisters, but I ask Holy Spirit again, would you help us to soak this in, that this would affect the way we believe, that it would affect our, our worldview, our view of you, our view of our life, Lord, that we wouldn't just walk out of here focused on truth without love or focused on love without truth. Jesus, help us to be more like you. Help us to abide in you, that we would bear much fruit and bless you, Father, in heaven and be a blessing to those around us, whether within the church or outside the church. You've given us your Holy Spirit. Any of us who are thirsty, you invite us to come and drink of you and to the one who does, you have promised your love that will gush like torrents of living water out of our souls, out of our spirit, out of our inner being. And I pray, Lord, that here at the Bridge Fellowship that we would see the powerful, miraculous truth of your love, not just revitalizing, but vitalizing this fellowship. Lord, that we would be knit together in your love, ordering our life according to your truth. If there's anyone here this morning, Jesus, that you know is maybe struggling in this way, or maybe they, they just, there's something else you've quickened to their heart because of what they've heard from your word. Would you encourage them to, to come and pray um, with someone this morning? We don't stand up here to, to look pretty. We're here to join others, Lord, you know. But if they don't come forward, that's okay. That's between you and them. Would you encourage them to pray with someone else? Because you have said, Jesus, this is your promise that where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there with them. And if any two or three of you ask anything in my name, it will be granted. You will do it. If we do it in accordance with your nature and we do it in agreement. Jesus, help us to walk in the agreement and the truth of your love. Amen. Amen.